Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Ukrainian President Zelensky delivered a heavy speech to Congress and the American people today. What did he request and how did Congress and the White House respond? We bring you the latest announcement on what the U.S. is committing to and what it's not. Biological weapons or biological research? What's the difference? With questions circling around Ukraine's biolabs, we hear from an internationally recognized epidemiologist. The Fed will fight inflation, raising rates for the first time since 2018. But what are the risks? California lawmakers are considering a bill that would hold tech companies liable for social media addictions in children. Could this crush the problem? We explore the issue. And a New York state audit accuses the Cuomo administration of misleading the public during the pandemic and undercounting COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. The audit is triggering calls for an investigation. Ukraine's President Zelensky made an emotional plea to a full chamber of Congress today. He wants more sanctions and U.S. help with sending more Polish fighter jets for Ukrainian military to use. Here's NTD's Melina Weisskup with the details. President Zelensky today imploring Americans to remember the times when our home was under attack during Pearl Harbor and 9-11. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. He proposes creating a new alliance called U-24. This after Zelensky admitted that the possibility of Ukraine joining NATO is unrealistic. Zelensky thanked the U.S. for the sanctions on Russia so far, but he calls for more. All American ports should be closed for Russian goods. Peace is more important than income to create a no-fly zone over Ukraine to save people. Is this too much to ask? Humanitarian, no-fly zone, something that Ukraine, that Russia, would not be able to terrorize our free cities. His calls for the U.S. to establish a no-fly zone were expected. And as for now, unlikely. U.S. officials warn that if American forces were to enforce a no-fly zone, it would escalate the conflict. President Biden has repeatedly said it could start a World War III. Lawmakers from both sides are pressing Biden to at least give Ukraine the help needed to close their skies themselves. Immediately what we should do is be creative, figure out ways to facilitate the transfer of these weapons into Ukraine immediately. And I do believe with that we can close those skies and start saving the lives and stop the bombing. Today, a large group of Republicans telling reporters that they hope to pressure Biden enough to change his mind. And we should provide the means for him to enforce that uh, no-fly zone. Whenever Congress is pushing, then the media echoes. And then what we have seen recently is that the president will finally give in and act. So Congress must keep pushing. And as for what Congress is trying to do right now to hold Russia accountable and support Ukraine, congressional leadership is working to pass a bill to revoke Russia's trade status officially, and they're hoping to get that through by the end of the week. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Melina Weiskopf, NTD News. And a response from the White House. President Biden is pledging hundreds of millions of dollars in new aid for Ukraine. NTD's Iris Tao brings us the latest. He speaks for a people who have shown remarkable courage and strength in the face of brutal aggression. Hours after Zelensky's plea to Congress, President Biden pledges to do more in the upcoming days. And that includes $800 million in new military aid to Ukraine. We're going to give Ukraine the arms to fight and defend themselves through all the difficult days ahead. I'm signing here. Today's announcement brings the total to $1 billion in aid announced in just the last week. The new funds are going toward 800 anti-aircraft systems to stop Russian planes, 9,000 anti-armor systems to destroy tanks, as well as small arms such as machine guns and grenade launchers. These are direct transfers of equipment from our Department of Defense to the Ukrainian military to help them as they fight against this invasion. And I thank the Congress for appropriating these funds. But both Biden and the White House today said they believe the war has no near end in sight. What I would note is we haven't seen any effort to de-escalate from President Putin and from the Russian militaries. 
And there are two things that President Biden did not address today, which was not a surprise. No deal on establishing a no-fly zone over Ukraine and no news on giving the country fighter jets. Reporting in Washington, D.C., Iris Tao, NTD News. Signs of progress have begun to emerge in the latest round of talks between Russia and Ukraine. The Russian side says there are concrete formulations that are close to agreement. This is happening while NATO defense ministers meet in Brussels to discuss the war. NTD's Allison Lee has the latest. Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov says that talks with Ukraine have begun to manifest a business-like spirit. The fourth round of talks continued Wednesday and the two sides focused on the issue of Ukraine's neutrality. A neutral status is being seriously discussed in connection, of course, with security guarantees. There are concrete formulations that, in my view, are close to being agreed on. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky also said Wednesday that Russia's demands during negotiations are becoming more realistic. He added that efforts are still needed and patience is needed. The Russian side also appears more optimistic. I very much hope that the business spirit, which is now, not immediately, not simply, but nevertheless is beginning to manifest itself, and I hope it will prevail. It gives hope that we can agree on the issue. A Kremlin spokesman explains what kind of security model they are discussing for Ukraine. This is an option that is indeed now under discussion and can be viewed as a certain compromise, the Austrian or Swedish version of a demilitarized state. Austria and Sweden are both part of the European Union, but not members of NATO. And speaking of NATO, defense ministers of the alliance met in Brussels on Wednesday to discuss the situation in Ukraine. The leader of NATO categorically rules out setting up and policing a no-fly zone over Ukraine. But allies are also united uh, when it comes to that NATO should not deploy forces on the ground or in the airspace over Ukraine. But this can become even worse if NATO took actions that actually turned it in, in, this into a full-fledged war between uh, NATO and, uh, and Russia. The alliance weighed in on what measures to take to deter a Russian invasion against its member states in the next five to ten years. Meanwhile, Russia says it will not use chemical weapons in the war in Ukraine. I want to officially state that the Russian armed forces involved in the special military operation do not and cannot have chemical munitions. Russia continues to say that the war is going according to plan and that their goal is not to occupy Ukraine. Allison Lee, NTD News. Over three million Ukrainians have already fled their country. NTD's Dan Skorback is on the ground in Lviv, which is about 45 miles from the Polish border. Today, he visited a train station, in, which is now the central hub for refugees before they leave the country. For Ukrainian refugees, if you want to leave to Poland, most likely you will come through Lviv. At this train station, the authorities organized a room specifically for women and children ages of zero to three years old. Local volunteers dressed up in bear costumes and dinosaur costumes and give out free candy to cheer up the kids. We have a room here for mothers and children. We have a small hygiene supply. Some 1,200 volunteers staff this station 24-7. They offer information, security, and anything from heating barrels to medicine to moral support, which many mothers need. It's about keeping the mothers calm. When the mothers feel calm, that calmness transfers to the children, and they understand then that there is no war here, that they are just making friends and traveling. Christina herself is a mother of a young child. She has been volunteering at the train station for two weeks now. Her shifts are eight hours long. She says it's necessary because many mothers who come here are stricken with sheer panic, and that affects the children. They are little heroes. Some of them travel for 20 hours on the train, some even 30 hours, with mothers holding their newborns in their arms. These children are receiving an imprint on their soul, for sure. A great spirit within them will rebuild our nation. We also met Nastya, who escaped from Kramatorsk near contact line between Ukraine and Russia-controlled regions. She told us that she won't be away for long. When will you come back? When the war will end. Of course, there's a little bit of crying here and there, but the atmosphere is rather hopeful. 
Dan Skorbak, NTD News, Ukraine. With the Russia-Ukraine war well into the fourth week, there are still questions surrounding the existence of biological labs in Ukraine. Russia has accused Ukraine of operating U.S.-funded biowarfare labs, a claim that has been repeatedly rejected by the White House. But the American government has confirmed that there are labs in Ukraine dedicated to the research of pathogens. So what do we make of this? NTD's Chenny Wu spoke with a top infectious disease expert to get some answers. U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations Linda Thomas-Greenfield last week denied accusations by Russia that Ukraine is operating biological weapons labs supported by the U.S. However, Ukraine does have a network of biolabs dedicated to research of pathogens, and those labs have received resources and research support from the U.S. I spoke to Syra Madad, an internationally recognized public health leader and epidemiologist in infectious disease and special pathogens. Could you tell me what is the purpose of these biological research labs? Yeah, that's a, so I think first, you know, the claims that Russia is making are unsubstantiated, and these are theories that really are being tied to, you know, conspiracy theories, if you will. Um, and so I think first, there's a big difference between, you know, biological weapons and research and public health surveillance, mitigation, and response. She says that the labs they are referring to in Ukraine are set up for mitigating the threat of infectious diseases to humans and to animals and to prevent large-scale outbreaks. As the Russian invasion continues, the World Health Organization has advised Ukraine to destroy pathogens in its public health laboratories. However, Russia is accusing Ukraine of destroying the material in order to conceal the country's weapons program. Why is there a concern here? Are these labs potentially dangerous? Well, these labs contain infectious disease, you know, uh, agents and substances, you know, that could pose a threat to the general population. If they come into the wrong hands, certainly they can cause, uh, you know, a lot of, uh, you know, population-wide harm if, you know, if there is a, an intentional or accidental release. What's the difference between these bio-research labs and the bio-weapons labs that Russia is accusing them of having? They're doing research that, you know, is transparent. That's a key word right there. Madad says there are international health regulations for such biological research facilities, and a lot of information about them is publicly available. She adds that these research facilities are missing the necessary infrastructure to produce bioweapons, such as special labs and personnel. Madad says that Ukraine's bioresearch programs are not unique, and many other countries have them as well for public health surveillance purposes. Do we want to be caught with another COVID-19 pandemic? No, right? So we want to make sure all countries have public health surveillance laboratories in place to be able to mitigate you know, these types of infectious disease threats. These are just normal processes, and it's just being completely blown, blown out of proportion with these unsubstantiated claims. Chenny Wu, NTD News. The Federal Reserve today raised interest rates for the first time since 2018. The Federal Reserve chairman blamed inflation on American workers demanding higher wages. Here's what he had to say. If you add uh, job openings to those who are employed, that's actually substantially a larger number than the size of the workforce than the number of people who actually count themselves as in the workforce. So this is a situation where demand is higher than supply. And when that happens, prices go up. The Fed is hoping its actions won't cause a recession. Higher rates could slow economic growth by taking money and demand out of the economy. Money becomes more expensive to borrow for businesses and regular Americans, so they're less likely to do it. Also, if you have credit card debt or other loan debt, you'll have to pay more interest. That will leave you with less to spend on other things, so the price of those things might fall if no one buys them. But Powell thinks we probably won't see a recession in the next year. He says consumer demand is high enough and labor market is strong enough to withstand higher interest rates. The Fed is raising rates by just a quarter percent, but Powell hinted that we'll see many more of those rate hikes throughout the year. So the way, the way that works, I would explain, is as we raise interest rates, that should gradually slow down demand for the interest-sensitive parts of the economy. And so what we would see is, uh, is demand slowing down, but just enough so that it's better matched with supply. And that, brings, that will bring inflation down over time. That's, that's our plan. 
You've probably seen it. Kids glued to their phones, absorbed by social media. And news about the harms of social media addiction is prevalent. But how to solve this problem? California lawmakers are offering a novel solution by making companies liable for the addiction. NTD's Miguel Moreno reports. The parents of children addicted to social media could be given the ability to sue those tech companies, hold them responsible for the addiction. That's what Republican Assemblyman Jordan Cunningham and his Democratic colleague Buffy Wicks have proposed in California. In a public statement, Cunningham said, we need to hold companies accountable when they knowingly create products that addict children and cause harm. Last year, company documents from Meta, formerly known as Facebook, were leaked and published on the Wall Street Journal. In part, they said 32% of teen girls who felt bad about their bodies felt worse when they used Instagram, which is owned by Meta. I think that a lot of parents and a lot of people in general are kind of beginning to understand more and more the impact that social media has on individuals and then particularly young people. Andrew Selipak is a professor of social media at the University of Florida. According to founder of Common Sense Media, Jim Steyer, tech companies use addictive design features and algorithms to keep kids hooked to their services. Could this bill radically change social media as it exists in California? I don't think the bill is going to have too much of an impact. One, because it's only something that's in California. Two, also because of the fact that what it really is doing is setting punitive damages onto the social media companies. It's not necessarily forcing them to make any changes. It's essentially saying if there is any harm that a court decides has been done to a child, that the companies would then be liable in terms of a paying out money. Selipak says that in his view, a preventative measure would be better, not one that kicks in after the damage is done. We contacted Meta for comment, but we haven't heard back. Instagram has started testing a take a break feature on their app. It reminds users who use the feature to take a break from the app after a set amount of time. Miguel Moreno, NTD News. A New York state audit accuses the former governor's administration of undercounting COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes by over 4,000. The audit has prompted some New York officials to call on Governor Kathy Hochul to launch an investigation. NTD's Grace Coulter has the details. An audit released Tuesday by the New York State Comptroller accuses the state's Department of Health of misleading the public during the pandemic and at certain points undercounting the number of nursing home deaths by more than 50 percent. The Comptroller found that from April 2020 to February 2021, the Health Department failed to account for a total of 4,100 lives lost to COVID-19 in nursing homes. The audit states that the lack of transparency could potentially stem from poor quality data early in the outbreak, but it also says that during certain periods, it was likely a deliberate decision. According to the audit, health department officials had no explanation when questioned about the incorrect data. The New York Health Department has pushed back against the findings, saying it's the fault of the executive chamber of the prior administration and not department personnel. The administration of former Governor Andrew Cuomo has come under fire for its lack of transparency, especially in relation to the number of COVID-19 deaths. It's also faced heavy criticism for issuing a controversial order at the start of the pandemic. The order forced nursing homes to accept elderly people who tested positive for the virus. Some people have blamed this order for the high number of COVID-19 deaths in nursing homes. New York Attorney General Letitia James said the audit affirms the findings her office uncovered last year. New York State lawmaker and aging committee chair Ron Kim responded to the audit and called for an investigation. He wrote on Twitter Tuesday, Governor Hochul must decide today whether she wants to normalize elder side by treating older adults as disposable animals or seize this moment to hold DOH accountable and investigate what we did wrong under the previous administration. As of Tuesday afternoon, the New York governor has not responded to the audit. Grace Coulter, NTD News, New York. Coming up, a state college in New York is inviting a convicted cop killer to speak at an event. He will be talking about the history of black liberation. 
Oil prices have dropped $30 from their highest point a week ago, but gas prices aren't easing. Why? All that and more coming up on MTD News. College in New York State is being criticized for inviting a convicted cop killer to speak about the history of black liberation. The college says he was imprisoned because of his political beliefs. The State University of New York, SUNY for short in Brockport, is inviting Jalil Muntakim to speak about the history of black liberation. Muntakim, formerly known as Anthony Buttoms, led various civil rights movements. But he was also imprisoned for almost 50 years because he ambushed and killed two police officers. On Sunni's website, he's described as a political prisoner and a loving human being. They had officers begging for their lives while they end up shooting and killing them and taking away from their families. Joseph Imperatrice is the founder of Blue Lives Matter New York City. He noted that Muntakim was part of the Black Liberation Army and might even have inspired them with his homicide. The individuals in the Black Liberation Army also went and committed more assassinations of police officers. So this group is, is not your friendly group of people looking to go out there and give charity and give back to their communities. These are people that openly hate the cops, hate the government, hate rules, and would do anything at that time to go out there and cause hell. Joseph isn't alone with this view. New York City's police union released a statement noting that the speech will be taxpayer funded and that he'll be depicted as a U.S. political prisoner rather than the bloody assassin that he really is. And the widow of one of the murdered officers wrote a letter to the school saying, while my husband lay on the ground pleading with them not to kill him, pleading he had a wife and children, Bottom took his service revolver and emptied it into his body. There were 22 bullet holes in his body. We reached out to SUNY Brockport for comment, but didn't hear back before broadcast. Arian Pastar, NTD News, New York. As citizens deal with the impact of crime, they also face the impact of inflation. Oil prices have fallen pretty significantly this week, so why haven't we seen gas prices come down? NTD's Faye Quarter explains. West Texas intermediate prices are falling. Brent prices are falling. Meanwhile, gas station prices are not. President Biden tweeted, oil prices are decreasing. Gas prices should too. And Bernie Sanders tweeted, shocking. Gas prices are at the highest levels ever at the same time the big oil companies are raking in huge profits. Gasoline prices will come down in the next week or two. I mean, when you get oil from the oil field it goes to the refinery, then it goes to the gas station. It takes time. Jay Young is the CEO of King Operating Corporation and the author of The Upside of Oil and Gas Investing. Young says gas prices are a lagging indicator of what's happening in the oil markets. Now, the gas station doesn't say, oh, my, the price went down on the stock exchange, so I'll lower my price. What they do is this gas tank that's under the ground needs to be refilled. It's going to cost me this amount of money from the distributor. And so they base the price off what it costs to refill the tank. So if the distributor raises the prices because they're being told the prices are going to be higher from the producer because the speculators make it higher, gas prices don't change that quickly. Lauren Fix is an automotive expert at Car Coach Reports. She believes politicians who criticize gas prices are unaware of how businesses operate. Joshua Pierce is a business professor at Western University. Pierce says the rise and fall of crude prices are due mainly to speculation. The oil markets became uh, very excited because they didn't know what was going to come in the future. And so everyone was trying to buy up oil so that they would have some reserves so they could sell it in the future. And then now that we have a better understanding about the West's um, sort of ways of dealing with Russia, uh, it's kind of calmed everybody down. Meanwhile, today's average gas price is $4.30 a gallon, around a one-cent drop from yesterday's average of four thirty-one. Faye Quarter, NTD News. Meanwhile, 77% of Americans say they believe President Biden should prioritize increasing energy production. Only 9% say no. Those who want more production include 67% of Democrats and 88% of Republicans. And French Open organizers announced Wednesday that tennis star Novak Djokovic will be allowed to defend his title at Roland Garros this spring. Djokovic is not vaccinated against COVID-19. 
France lifted mask and vaccine restrictions in most settings just this week. Organizers have cautioned that new restrictions could still be imposed if the virus situation deteriorates. Djokovic, now ranked second in the world, was famously deported from Australia in January after his visa was revoked, causing him to miss the Australian Open. One of his main rivals, Rafael Nadal, took tr the trophy home instead. The title broke a three-way tie with Djokovic and Roger Federer for most Grand Slam wins of all time. The French Open starts on May 22nd. And the first round of the NCAA tournament starts tomorrow. The annual tournament, normally full of upset wins, shocking losses and Cinderella stories. And only the strongest team will be cutting down the nets come April. And TD's Dave Martin has more. There are a number of storylines to this year's tournament. Will Gonzaga finally win the title? Does Baylor have enough to repeat? Will Duke send Coach K into retirement with another championship? Let's look at the regions. The West region is loaded and could feature the best second-round matchup of the tournament, Duke versus Michigan State. Coach K versus Tom Izzo one last time. The region also has top-seeded Gonzaga as well as an underrated Texas Tech squad that allows just 60 points per game on defense. Look for Gonzaga to advance to the Sweet 16, along with Texas Tech, fifth-seeded UConn, and for Duke to top Michigan State in an instant classic. The South region looks less certain for the top seeds. Arizona is the one seed, but no one is sure what to expect of them with first-year head coach Tommy Lloyd at the helm. Villanova has won two of the last five national championships, but this year's squad didn't fare so well in the non-conference schedule, losing to UCLA, Purdue, and Baylor. Still, it's hard to see either of them falling before the Sweet 16. Look for third-seeded Tennessee and fifth-seeded Houston to advance as well. The East region features Blue Bloods, Kentucky, UCLA, and North Carolina, as well as reigning champion Baylor Bears as the top seed. But look for eight-seed Carolina, though, to pull the upset in round two over the Bears to make the Sweet 16 in what should be a much-anticipated matchup. Meanwhile, Kentucky with rebounding machine Oscar Shrebway should join them, along with UCLA and possible Cinderella story Virginia Tech. The 11th seed Hokies are fresh off a surprising ACC tournament championship. Finally, the Midwest region has top seed Kansas, second seed Auburn, and a number of question marks, such as how will six seed LSU react after head coach Will Wade's firing last week? And how good is Kansas really after Kentucky beat them in Lawrence by 18 points? Kansas does have Remy Martin back at full speed now and should have enough to make it through the first weekend. Auburn is led by freshman star Jabari Smith and shot blocker Walker Kessler and should join KU, as well as Big East winner Providence and sixth-seeded LSU in the Sweet 16. Dave Martin, NTD News. Up next, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol is seizing record amounts of illegal meat products from China. The agents uncovered nearly 780,000 pounds from two ports in California. And parents in Los Angeles gather at the local teachers' union to demand an end to mask mandates. The protest comes after California lifted its mandates, but students in Los Angeles are still required to mask up at school. Find out more here on NTD News. the nation's largest seaport, U.S. Customs and Border Patrol, or CBP, is seizing record amounts of illegal meat products from China. Illegal meat imports from China reached a peak in 2021. Agents at the adjoining Los Angeles and Long Beach ports uncovered nearly 787,000 pounds, an 80% increase from the year before. Between October and December alone, agents seized more than 262,000 pounds of prohibited pork, chicken, beef, and duck products. Agents found most of the illegal animal products stored with boxes of e-commerce shipments and household goods. They say it's a clear attempt to smuggle the meat. The Los Angeles CBP Director of Field Operations said that keeping out foreign contagious animal diseases and pests is vital to the agriculture industry and the well-being of the community. 
According to the USDA, China is known to have cases of African swine fever, classical swine fever, foot and mouth disease, bird flu, and other virulent diseases. When illegally shipped meat is intercepted, CBP says it either destroys it or sends it back to China. For weeks, Governor Gavin Newsom teased that California would soon shift to a post-COVID state. But despite the talk about learning to live with an endemic virus, the governor and some lawmakers alike are not lifting the state of emergency. State lawmakers in the Senate shot down a resolution that would end California's pandemic-related state of emergency on Tuesday. The bill, Senate Concurrent Resolution 5, was first introduced in December of 2020 by Senator Melissa Melendez. It is time for the legislature to reassert its constitutional authority as a legislative body of this state and end this endless emergency. Melendez said the state of emergency has given the governor too much power and noted 29 other states have already ended their emergencies. The state of emergency has been extended three times since it was first enacted in March of 2020. This resolution is about one thing and one thing only, and that is the balance of power. The balance between executive power and legis legislative power to be precise. On a party line vote, members of the Committee on Governmental Organization rejected ending the state of emergency in a four to eight vote. The committee chairman agreed to grant the resolution reconsideration, meaning it can be brought back for another vote later this year. The existing state of emergency proclaimed by the governor is absolutely important to ensure that the state can quickly and efficiently continue to respond to the COVID-19 pandemic and be prepared for possible future variants and surges. Following the vote, a spokesperson for the governor said in a statement, elected officials should focus on what best serves their constituents and stop with the political theater. The state will continue to be guided by the latest science and data as we respond to the evolving pandemic. In late February, Newsom ended 95% of his executive orders related to the CCP virus, also known as COVID-19. Of the 33 remaining orders, 18 of them will end on March 31st, while the other 15 will end on June 30th. However, the COVID state of emergency remains in place. California officially lifted its school mask mandate last Saturday, but students in Los Angeles are still masked inside the classroom. Here's more from a parent protest outside of the Los Angeles Teachers Union building. On Tuesday, a group of Los Angeles parents rallied outside the Teachers Union headquarters. They demanded an end to mask requirements for the CCP virus, also known as COVID-19, which they say are being kept in place by the teachers union, UTLA. Okay, so UTLA is basically the thorn in most parents' side for the last two and a half years. Um, they have basically held up the education of the kids of LAUSD. Every step of the way, they've stood in the way of getting the kids back to school. Along with the state, Los Angeles County officially lifted the indoor mask-wearing requirements at schools. The LA Unified School District, however, has kept the requirement in place. Rosenthal says it's in place because of labor negotiations. So this is all a negotiation tactic, it's a, it's a stalling tactic, it's a power grab, basically. Our kids are not hostages. We're not negotiating for our kids. We want the kids to get their masks off. Other parents say their children are being bullied for resisting wearing masks. My daughter actually attempted to take off her mask. She got bullied. They had security guards. They had police officers there. The entire school board members were there and they just weren't allowed. Monroe said the mask mandates no longer make sense as people are going maskless throughout the rest of L.A. According to the County Department of Public Health, K-12 schools saw a positivity rate of 0.3% at the beginning of March. They go everywhere without a mask. The only time they're wearing a mask is in school, and it's not my child's responsibility to protect adults. It's just not. It's not their responsibility. UTLA issued a statement last month supportive of masking. They wrote, LAUSD schools have been the safest and most well-equipped in the country because educators and families united to demand critical health and safety protocols. NTD reached out to UTLA for comment. It's just really a symptom of the larger issue, which is that there is a learning loss and there's no account accountability 
for the academic loss to this institution, the, the teachers' union. I encourage all parents to come out and protest and know not to be afraid. At this point, there's nothing to be afraid of other than our children are going to be a generation of mental illness, trauma, anxiety, depression. Mask mandate removal is subject to labor talks with UTLA. Those talks are expected to resume Wednesday. Coming up, a new pandemic wave has over 30 million people in China under lockdown. For many, it means they're effectively grounded, not allowed to leave their province or their homes without police permission. And the classic image of police scientists looking through microscopes for bloodstains may be no more as the London police launch a new infrared camera for finding blood on dark clothing. That and more in just a moment here on NTD News. First, a look at China's pandemic front. Close to 40 million people in China are under strict lockdowns right now. That's as authorities there battle a rising wave of the CCP virus, which causes COVID-19. Here's more. Getting food deliveries from behind locked gates is the new normal for some residents in Shanghai. And over 100 international flights to the financial hub have been diverted to other airports. Over 20 million people live there. And many of those residents are lining up for mass virus testing. That's as new infections have spread to over 20 provinces in China, including other major cities like Shenzhen and Beijing. One major virus hotspot is Jilin, a province in northeastern China. The city's 20 million people have effectively been grounded. They are not allowed to leave their province unless they get permission from police officers. One resident there tells NTD about the impact the lockdowns have had on his life. To protect his identity, we've distorted his voice. All the schools there, universities, middle schools and elementary schools have shut down. Yang also has few opportunities to leave home. I'm allowed to leave my home every two days to get groceries. A local health care worker says hospitals are suspending their operations. To protect her identity, we gave her a pseudonym, Wang Ping. My hospitals has closed because of virus cases. Hospitals are not seeing patients now, including the major facilities here. Other cities in China are also ordering lockdown measures. In a city called Longfang in northern China, residents aren't allowed to leave their homes unless it's an emergency. In Beijing and Shanghai, authorities have closed schools, parks and movie theaters. Long-distance travel is also suspended. Beijing gave one of its most explicit statements on sanctions against Russia Tuesday. The Chinese foreign minister said Beijing wants to avoid being impacted by sanctions. This is because, he says, China has nothing to do with the Ukraine conflict. What is he implying? NTD's Don Ma has the details. Does the Chinese foreign minister's statement hint that China is distancing itself from Russia? Is China displaying a fear for U.S. sanctions? Well, as for the sanctions, a senior fellow at the Huston Institute, who specializes in foreign policy and international relations, says that Beijing is afraid of U.S. sanctions. China, they're worried that they might get sanctions that could hit them really hard, and the U.S. would be able to do that. Uh, should they decide. The U.S. warned China Sunday that it will face consequences if Beijing tries to help compensate Russia amid sanctions. What could those consequences be? China could be subject to secondary sanctions. So Chinese institutions, companies, persons who deal with assets that are linked to Russia uh, could be hit by restrictions, and the most severe of those types of sanctions would be to do with uh, restricting access to the U.S. financial system. As for when the Chinese foreign minister said that China has nothing to do with the Ukraine conflict, is he hinting that China wants to distance itself from Russia? Ethan Yang, who specializes in political science and international relations at the American Institute for Economic Research, says yes, but also no. China is trying to distance itself in the matter on this specific issue of Ukraine, but it's not going to undermine the entire Russian-Chinese relationship in the sense of the grand scheme of things. Though Mr. Yang says it's not a no-limits partnership between China and Russia. 
China only partnered with Russia out of necessity. It was the only other uh, great power in the region that was opposed to the U.S., opposed to the West. And so it was a natural alliance out of necessity. When things get out of hand, as they are right now, the Chinese will, will take the appropriate steps to distance themselves because they... Yang says China doesn't care about Russia taking over Ukraine as much as Russia cares about taking over Ukraine. He points out there's no Chinese forces helping out with the invasion. He also adds that the two countries are not necessarily interested in helping each other out that much beyond their own domestic interests. Don Ma, NTD News. And over to the UK. For over 100 years, police investigators have spent hours painstakingly poring over clothing to search for bloodstains as evidence. But a new technology from the Met means forensic scientists are now able to spot tiny specks of blood on dark clothing in a matter of seconds, sometimes resulting in crucial evidence. Here's NTD's Eddie Aitken with more. New technology developed by the Metropolitan Police means suspects can be quickly identified in an investigation. An infrared camera allows the smallest of bloodstains to be found almost immediately, even on dark clothing. These tiny spots of blood can be crucial evidence. Alan Tribe is the Met's director of forensic operations. He says for over 100 years, scientists have painstakingly used microscopes in the search for bloodstains. But dark clothing always made it difficult. Um, it is a challenge that we have um, encountered over several decades, but it's been an increasing issue as we look to tackle violence. Tackling violence is the Met's highest priority. An increasing number of violent crimes in London are being committed by people wearing dark clothing. Bloodstains need to be found rapidly for DNA testing. So we have um, developed uh, this technology in response to that to try and find a better way uh, to move on from those decades-old techniques of looking for bloodstains. Using a microscope to search for blood on dark clothing can take days and sometimes weeks. The new technology searches dark clothing for blood through a purpose-built, super-high-resolution camera and hands-free computer system. Andrew Hart is a senior forensic scientist. He says the new system works along the same principles as night vision cameras. Infrared, uh, the light and, and this use has been around for, for many, many years. But with the way the technology has changed, we've got digital photography now. And it's something we've adapted uh, from, from other industries uh, and, and, and it's been tailored to our use in sort of bloodstain searching in forensic science. Using the camera, forensic examiners are now able to view an area equivalent to an A4 sheet of paper, rather than poring over small sections with a light. The Met is the first UK organisation to be accredited to use this technology in casework. It is now working towards creating a more portable version, so it can be used on crime scenes. Eddie Aitken, NTD News. A year and a half after a French teacher was found beheaded by a terrorist, some school teachers say they find it hard to do their jobs and teach about religion in their classrooms. NTD's France correspondent David Vives met a high school teacher who says teachers are left alone to deal with potential threats. A report from the Economic War Think Tank released this month says Islamism is occurring within French schools. It's the example of the biggest school in the Savoie region. It's founded by a Turkish organization and supported by the education minister and local authorities. This, which isn't an isolated case, raises concerns for the author of the report, as it says these schools, quote, indoctrinate the pupils with a narrative that goes against French laws. And this matter ties in with a larger issue encountered in French public schools. In 2019, French teacher Samuel Paty was beheaded by a terrorist after showing cartoons of Mohammed in a high school classroom. More than a year and a half after, a study shows up to 50% of teachers in schools carry out self-censorship. Several teachers have criticized this situation. Veronique Bouzou is one of them. Teachers might say to themselves, if I speak about certain topics and a pupil misunderstands, posts a video or talks about me on social media, I might then be beheaded. I don't think you can blame teachers for self-censorship. There have been other cases of teachers in France being threatened for speaking about Islam. In 2014, Bouzou published a book called Teachers that are being murdered to highlight this situation. 
for Buzu, the protection of teachers isn't being addressed at all by the government or the education ministry. We are not supported by the government. I don't want to shoulder all these risks. We hear so much about radical Islamists that are out there. Mosques promoting radical Islam, nothing has changed. Can you imagine the administration tells the teacher that your only resort if your life is threatened is to ask to be safely removed from the school? Teachers need to speak about Christianity or religions in classes such as history or other matters relating to the science or fine arts. Buzu says this could be met with opposition in the classroom. For example, they ask why artists depict people in the nude in art. I sometimes have to explain the academic standards of beauty. It takes time and explanation. I also know some teachers who are not that well informed. They have a hard time explaining some things and are clumsy in the words they use. Following the killing of Paris less than 18 months ago, the education minister still says it's hard to evaluate the seriousness of threats and the danger encountered by teachers. Meanwhile, Buzu and other teachers say there is no law or protocol to support teachers, and the government should be focusing on this first to better address the issue. David Vives, NTD News, Paris. Coming up, stray cats playing around miniature trains have revived a restaurant in Japan on the brink of bankruptcy. Now the restaurant is attracting customers who love cats. Labrador retrievers continue to be the most popular dog breed in the U.S. And poodles are making a comeback and becoming more popular. That's according to the American Kennel Club Dog Registry. Find out more here on NTD News. wonder what would happen if giant cats were to take over the world? A restaurant in Japan offers an idea of it. The restaurant has come up with a creative way to attract diners and entertain them. Let's take a look. Diorama Cafeteria in Osaka is home to a family of stray cats. They entertain themselves by playing around a miniature railway model installed in the restaurant while customers cheer them on. But the restaurant had not always been this lively. When more people started to work from home, the number of children who came to the restaurant dropped sharply. And of course, the number of customers on weekends also declined. It's like a downward spiral. And we were facing a situation where we can't make our ends meet. The restaurant owner originally planned to create a space where diners can enjoy watching miniature trains running on railway tracks. But everything changed under the pandemic. I was thinking about whether to close down the restaurant or sell the business off at a low price so that it helps everyone. As I was deliberating between these two options, those cats appeared, and our lives have been changed by that. The restaurant owner says his staff first found the kitten at a nearby nursery. After taking it in, the kitten's mother started showing up at their door every day along with other baby cats. And thanks to them, the restaurant has come back to life as more cat lovers visited. The way the cat strides between the miniature models really looks like Godzilla. I've never seen it before and it's really interesting. The owner has been uploading videos of the cats playing with the miniature railway model on social media. Several people have made comments. Everyone in the world is going through a tough time due to the pandemic. So after I did something like that, I started to think that even if it's just a small light, I wanted to make it shine upon many people. Now, the restaurant is home to 14 cats. What's your favorite dog breed? The American Kennel Club says Labrador Retrievers are the most popular breed in the U.S., but poodles are rapidly gaining popularity. Here are the details. The American Kennel Club's annual popularity rankings came out on Tuesday. It was drawn from more than 800,000 purebred dogs that joined the club's registry last year. It's the nation's oldest canine registry. We have the Poodle at number five, which is the first time since 1997. That includes all varieties of the Poodle, standard, toy, and miniature. We have the German Shepherd Dog at number four, our loyal breed, which we absolutely adore. The Golden Retrievers at number three. 
At number two is the French Bulldog, which is also the most popular dog in New York City. And at number one for 31 years strong is a Labrador Retriever. Historically, poodles were water retrievers. They were the top dog breed from 1960 to 1982 before falling off in popularity. They are very intelligent, energetic, but they can also sleep on the couch all day long. Um, they have hair, not fur, so they don't shed at all, which is nice if you are allergy prone or if you value hair-free clothing. French Bulldogs are number two this time, but back in 2000, they were in 71st place. We had a great secret for a long time. Um, they're wonderful dogs. As with any breed, when it explodes like this, it can be detrimental. But I understand why people love them. Don't expect them to go hiking with you or swimming, but if you want a dog that you can chill with and have a good time with, they're great. And Labrador Retrievers have been topping the list for an unprecedented 31 straight years. They are the perfect size house dog uh, for kids, active families, um, you know, seniors, stuff like that. Very food motivated, easy to train, and they're just lovable. In sixth to tenth place are Bulldogs, Beagles, Rottweilers, German Short-Haired Pointers, and Dachshunds. The list has 197 recognized breeds. New purebred registrations are voluntary, and the club says registrations have increased by 45% in a decade. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox.